In today's episode, I sit down with Ross Almark. Ross has a fascinating career where he started in venue management, moved to work with Dice as their head of events, and most recently worked as head of ticketing for the upstart mobile ticketing company Dice, which is actually where we met when I was working at Us2. I found sitting down with Ross really, really interesting because he's had to wear a lot of different hats and discovered kind of the hard way how one approach to leading in a certain environment does not always translate into another environment. Ross will go into detail on how he survived the transition from being a leader in event management to leading teams in a tech company, uh, completely different hats, and he learned that the hard way. Uh, It was fantastic that Ross was so open about his own personal journey, and I'm sure many of you will relate we covered so much in this episode. I can't, it went by so quickly. I uh, wish we had more time. Um, but we cover everything from uh, changing those hats depending on team and work environment to building your own toolkit uh, to understanding what's important from a project management sense to integrate into your management role to ensure that everyone knows where they need to be in the right time. Um, and at the end finished off with a, I think we could have a whole podcast on how the promotion system of, uh, providing, you know, successful workers with more and more teams when there's actually no correlation to their ability to manage others and sometimes have no interest in managing others, uh, basically, uh, breaks the whole org structure as we know it. Anyways, I will leave that to you guys to listen Uh, As I said, really enjoyed sitting down with Ross and hope you enjoy it as well. Good morning, Ross. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? (laughs) Yeah, very well, thanks. Very well. We're uh, unfortunately sitting inside on a very beautiful sunny day today in London. We've got some good wind though, though. That's good enough for me. (laughs) Uh, So thanks for coming on the Overtime podcast. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to chatting to you. For those of you that don't know, um, I've kind of been working with Ross in in a way when he was at Dice I was at us too mm-hmm. um and had a really great time uh chatting to Ross throughout both of our experiences but Ross how about you kick us off and um give the listeners a little bit of uh, insight to where you've come from so I guess I started with the idea of not working in an office which went incredibly wrong I started uh, originally I was a venue booker so uh small venues nightclubs stuff like that it would be my job to program those venues, create a program of events and, and work through that, um, and then build up that kind of brand and the, you know build that audience for each venue and then move on to the next one. Then after that, I moved over much more into doing um, more sort of client-focused stuff with, with brands. That was with Vice, and the, the role there was to work in more of a producer role. So brands would come to us and they'll be like, I want to do this kind of event to activate this kind of product or, or you know I've got this set of goals for our brand and it'd be my job to deliver that so you're working much more with uh, large teams or one-off events and then from there I made the somewhat rocky transition which which you helped me with a lot of moving from working as an event producer to essentially doing much more product management stuff in in the technology area and the jump was sort of bigger than I think I ever kind of imagined so Working in the area of, 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 as an event producer, you very much have one shot to get things right. You're working on a really tight timeline. And there isn't really much opportunity to iterate as you go or be behaviorally led in the way that you manage stuff. And what people are really looking to you for is to be the person who just has all the answers. So 
while there's all this chaos going around, you're the person who isn't losing their head and you know, you know, where that speaker step needs to go or, you know, where to get the, the keys for the, um, you know, Lou Roll dispensers, <laughs> you know, any kind of huge range of these answers. And then you move over, then I moved into tech and it couldn't have been more different. I, I remember first couple of projects I worked on with, uh, with actual developers, I think they genuinely hated me and I couldn't quite work out what it was in, that I was doing that had been so successful as an event producer, why none of the leadership skills that I picked up there seemed to apply in any way. It was literally mm. like going into like the upside down. <laughs> everything, everything just fell to pieces immediately. Um, so I had to do quite a lot of reflection on, on why that was. And I guess what the crux of it kind of came down to was the fact that previously as an event producer, my job had been to give people answers. Whereas as a product manager, um, which was definitely part of what I was doing at DICE, it was really about giving people problems. Mm. So it was really about framing to those developers, we have this problem, and framing that in a way that would be engaging and meaningful to them and allow them to, to work with independence to deliver things and then iterate. Uh, it's a bit like going from being sort of a, a, a captain in a sort of military division to being the dungeon master in a game of Dungeons, Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons, right? And I think, I, think there's, I think there's genuinely an academic study to be written on how Dungeons and Dragons has influenced software development over the last thirty-five years. So I'm not—I'm not a player myself. <laughs> um, and for those that also aren't aren't familiar with how Dungeon and Dungeons and Dragons work, would you say that's much more of a facilitator role? Yeah, right. So okay. you're you're like laying out. If if you're, <laughs> you mean I'm not a player as well. I'm although I do love board games, um, but I do have have more knowledge of Dungeons and Dragons than I'd like to admit. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the idea is that the Dungeon Master is basically laying out the journey in the game and, and creating the world uh, in which the players operate. And I think there's a lot of um, parallels in that when you're running a team and you're trying to give people a transcendent set of aims, you're trying to give them um, problems to fix, you're trying to make the whole process um, something that will really bring them a degree of joy from how they work on things and that process of getting things done. Uh, you know, that graph should be a, a joyful thing. Because as we all know, like happiness is really a, a, a pretty strong predictive force for how well uh, certainly a product will be delivered. Definitely. I don't know if that's necessarily the same with an event. I think, <laughs> I think with, with an event, it's more like you go in and you tear through it. Um, but it's, it's interesting because, you know, in an event, you are really dealing as well. You know, you have very skilled specialist people there, just like you do in, in product management. I think maybe you have a bit more of a range of ability and skill because mm. you'll also have, you know, bar staff, you'll have your local crew, um, you know, all these people whose main job is to lift things in and out of a room. But you still you still have that kind of some of those kind of similar dynamics. So it's it's interesting the parallels and differences, I think. That's fascinating. And I so one of the things that I know a lot of the managers that I speak to kind of struggle with is the is communicating that North Star, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and tying that to the day-to-day so that that happiness isn't just focused on when something's delivered or achieved Mm -hmm. but the happiness is there throughout because the manager or leader does a really great job Mm -hmm. in reinforcing that have you how have you found the best way to do that in your team i think it's 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 really great storytelling and it's about being very present i think uh you know this idea that you can sort of walk away having given someone a list of tasks uh, and then reward them at the end just when they that they get something done. 
I think it, it's just plain incorrect, mm -hmm. you know. And I think having that presence, being people, uh, being with people, and that really came to probably the biggest change in what my conception of like leadership was as a principle, right? So originally, I had this sort of idea of the the heroic leader, you know, that military commander, where the most sort of um, valid thing you could do was to be at the front of the team, like leading on point and, and, and kind of delivering that way. Then it very much shifted much more into this facilitator kind of role of being supportive and creating that narrative on a day-to-day -day basis and being the person who uh, is just in the room with people when they're, when they're doing stuff and, and supporting them rather than, you know, being there, you know, at the beginning to be like, do this and the end to like, be like, look at what we did. Yes. I, I think that was a huge change for me. But you found that that kind of dictatorial role worked well for you in the event management. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, really, really well. And I, I tried to apply in technology and boy, did it not work. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, all of my traditional levels, I think I've been at, at DICE for about six months when I had the first sort of uprising of my team, <laughs> where they were like, this guy is a, is, is a bit of a nightmare. And for me, it was, it was it, you know, it was really, really hard because firstly, certainly, in the, in the companies I've worked at previously, there wasn't a culture of feedback. Mm. They were very hierarchical. So the idea that your team might feedback on you in any way that wasn't just them telling you how great you were was like completely alien to me and I, I freaked out. Like I, I was, I think I was angry for like a month. <laughs> and and I, I literally, and to my great discredit for, for a week, I could barely speak to any of them. And the reason, the reason for that was I'd had a, this idea of myself because from the place that I came from, that I was a, a really generous and accommodating and supportive leader. Mm. And in that context, I kind of was, but then actually in a different industry, it was a completely different mm -hmm. set of standards. And not just in terms of um, what my output should be, but the whole way I should conduct myself. And I remember I sat down with one poor team member who hadn't done something. And, you know, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a, I'd asked him to do something um, while I was on a sit day. Mm -hmm. And they hadn't done it, and it was an important thing. And I decided that the best way to try and deal with that was to basically guilt them and to say, you know, you have really let me down. This has been a breach of trust, uh, you know, all of these things. And it just backfired on me horrifically. In what way? Well, I think she went from being um, motivated to being highly unmotivated, <laughs> <laughs> like, like a harpy. Because she's just thinking that, you know, uh, all of these things that I do day in, day out, mm -hmm. this guy doesn't. Uh, appreciate me for and I do this and suddenly it's like the end of the world right uh, and I, I think I overreacted a little bit uh, and I think as well at, the, at that point there was other dynamics in the team new people coming in I think she suddenly felt like her position was maybe a little bit mm. threatened uh, and it just really upset her which is not a good outcome you know so that was the last time I ever did that but <laughs> I had to go through this uh, process of learning how to take feedback at like age 33 34 um, which I'd never had had to really do previously and that jump to understanding how feedback can be a positive thing and you know how to frame that was really hard yeah it was, it was really hard it brought out basically all of my own personality flaws that I then had to confront in like the public arena <laughs> like all the things I don't like about myself it was terrible <laughs> and you're not alone I yeah. know so when we talk about leadership um and the number one quality that a leader can have i i always feel that it's self-awareness yeah. because we're not we're not perfect and we're never going to be perfect and when you manage teams you manage many different individuals that have mm. 
bias, perspective, expectations, and they're very hard to meet. Yeah. But if you're aware of your own blind spots and you receive the feedback, it's less of a crisis, so to speak, um, and sends you into a tailspin for three months. You want to be able to be, uh, you know, in a place where you can hear something about yourself. It still might be a blind spot, but it matches to the kind of perception that you have of yourself. And if it doesn't, then that's a really big learning for you. But I can imagine if you, you know, you don't go on that journey and then you just get barraged by a whole bunch of mirrors going up. Um, you know, it's quite traumatic. Even it's, exactly, you know, when it comes at you very suddenly, and you have to just re, I had to rejig that whole thing. Go, you. This is a learning experience, and this is really good for me. And this is actually the only way I'm going to learn this stuff, because you can, much as though it's really, really great to, um, as we as we've done, speak to other uh, mm-hmm. managers and other leaders about their experiences and have that sense of camaraderie. Every situation is different. You know, there really is no winning leadership. There's no final point where it's like, now I am wonderful at this. I am the main person. All there is is, is you know, frameworks and tools that you fall back on when, you know, your own instincts, uh, like, let you down. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's that's really what I've learned. And that change, um, as jarring as it was, has taught me that lesson. And, and really, the idea of when you go into a team, you have to take nothing for granted you no. know about, about how you, you need to get to know those people you need to understand their motivations you need to understand why they're in the room um what they're all about how they the dynamics between them are and i mean it, it really is it really is fascinating and just the sheer variety of of experiences you get from that is is something that you know you could certainly it, it's been a whole career uh, <laughs> ruminating on <laughs> apparently yeah <laughs> Going back to something you just said around, um, you know, leadership isn't necessarily like you get the certificate and you're done. Yeah. It's a constant evolution and building your own uh, toolkit really full mm. of resources. And are there any that that you have found are firmly in your toolkit that you rely on? I think, you know, Radical Candor was a huge influence on me immediately in terms of getting over that um, that feedback issue and understanding it in, in, in both ways of how it can be constructive um, that's Kim. Is it Kim Scott? I think yeah, Kim, Kim Scott. Yeah, yeah who 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 uh, who created that? And that framework of being like, okay, what is feedback about? What are your motivations for doing it? You know, and really reframing it from feedback into guidance and guidance that can flow in different directions. That was a, a huge help for me in terms of really understanding and making sense of, of what this was about and avoiding like what was really for myself actually quite a lot of emotional turmoil. Uh, you know, really coming home feeling like I had failed people and that uh, I wasn't doing this right, and then suddenly being like, "Oh no, I, th- I think I, I think I get that now." I think also piecing things together from from a lot of other a, f- a few learnings as well. I think one of the key things that that I learn, which is something that I it's sort of a bit of a mantra, um, is that when you're dealing with a team, you've got to be their boss first and their friend second. Yeah. Because if you're their friend first, you can't be a good boss, and you're therefore not a good friend. Yeah. Uh, that's something that I fall back on a lot my, my early experience when I was running venues right at the beginning was um, everyone I worked with was a friend you know that was it and, and it was all people I'd met from having a passion of music or uh, you know being into specific bands or going to specific shows and suddenly I'm in this relationship with them and if you're not the boss first if you're not able to have the hard conversations with them uh, you're letting them down that, that was really important and how do you make that transition if you were a peer for example and then promoted into a boss, so you kind of have to unfriend. Oh so to speak. yeah, you mean that's 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 
probably one of the hardest things to navigate. And again, that comes down a lot to the um, relationship. I have a very dear friend who I was, I was his boss for um, about two years and he used to hate ever any reference to that. So I had to be very, very careful how I, uh, how, how, how our interactions went to get the best out of him. And he was a very self-motivated person anyway, so it made that easy in mm. that way. You know, he was very, very, very good at his job, and it was really about more about me not getting hung up on my own role, right? Mm-hmm. So I could have easily thought, oh, well, I'm the boss here, and this guy's not acknowledging him. What's up with that? That's the problem. But it's not a problem. He's delivering, I'm doing my job, and he's making my life actually easier. So <laughs> I guess that's the way. Best case scenario. Yeah. yeah. But there's so many, I mean, I guess every time I read something, I, I, I tend to, I get inspired by different things I read all, all the time. I'm just reading uh, a lot on the sort of agile frameworks and, and all of that stuff. Again, it's a toolkit that you can deploy. I, I don't believe you should approach things like Scrum or, or Lean in a, in a hyper-dogmatic fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of that stuff, just thinking about how you, you know, things like retrospectives are super useful. They can be deployed in different different ways. I love the idea of Sprint more in the sort of project management, people, giving people that purpose. Um, I think that that's hugely useful as well. God, there's so much. <laughs> <laughs> None of it, no, I had no ideas of my own. It's all just endless reading. Yeah. Well, that's, that's success, right? It's just... <laughs> yeah putting your own toolkit together. Exactly, exactly. Now, there's, I would say, one of the words I would associate with you is um, organized (laughs) and extremely, I hate to use the word, but process-driven and and operational, which has, you know, served you well with the roles that you've done, especially in event management. For those of you that don't know me, I like to be organized, but not at the level of Ross and would go to Ross many times and go, how do I put this into some kind of chart or, you know, I've got all these ideas. How do I put them into flow? How do you make, and and I've explained uh, management as very, is is project management. It's about understanding, you know, the final goal and then making sure that people are in the right place at the right time to Mm -hmm. make sure that happens. Leadership is adding that empowerment level mm, mm, um, mm. into it. How do you, you know, what tips would you have for someone that's just starting out in management and maybe don't even know how to do project management, mm. don't know the basics? What What are some tips that you would give to someone like that? So I guess for me, again, it all comes down to like having a framework that you can fall back on mm-hmm. and like understanding how much information you can actually hold in your brain. Like you can only, I think that studies have shown you can only hold four pieces of information in your short-term memory at any given time, uh, which on a complex project means you need to get all of that down in some kind of format that works for you and your team and is built to the specifications of that project, whatever they may be. So for example, in the events world, it's very, uh, it's absolutely crucial to do what they call an advance. And that's basically two or three days, maybe two weeks, maybe a month before the event, you have circulated a day sheet which has everyone's contacts, the full schedule, the plan, the floor plan, all of that information, and everyone has read that and, and, and digested it. So it's really this thing of like getting everyone to have this um, clear view of what everyone else is doing. Okay. And that I think that's really actually the whole crux of operations. That's really what you're doing when you're delivering these things. It's about transparency of information, uh, everyone knowing what's going on, and, and trying to find really great ways of communicating that. The challenge becomes when you start building, working with complex systems. So you move away from something like a project, like an event, which is essentially transient. It happens once. You mm. might do others, but they'll be very different. 
Um, and then you move into something which is basically a repeating project, which is a process, right? Yeah. So like inside a, a company, you'll have the same set of actions repeated over and over again, day in, day out. Uh, and that is something that really depresses people. <laughs> it's, it's really, really difficult to give someone... Uh, one of the weirdest things I ever did, I don't know, I don't know if it was wrong, I created a, a logic diagram of one of my, uh, one of my colleagues entire role it was gi- it was gigantic but it basically mapped in flowchart flowchart form what he does at any given moment and it, it was just it was an act of sort of insanity i think on, on, on my part i never showed him it okay i was gonna say was, <laughs> it, was it well received <laughs> no. i was like here's your life yeah in flowchart form um so like while in my sort of slightly um slightly slightly kind of process obsessed brain that makes a lot of sense and it helped me a lot uh it's knowing how to translate that into into day-to-day stuff and again it comes back really to the like transcendent meaning stuff yeah so if someone's you know if the bulk of their job as much as you try and avoid it is to do one part of a, of a business process um really making it abundantly clear to them how that contributes to the outcome and the overall meaning and the success and telling it as a story rather than a than a, a flow chart or you know a Task yeah, yeah exactly and you I mean I, I I find that those things are really important for me as a manager mm-hmm. like for me to have those assets on hand so I can be really clear of how everything fits together what's important for the individual is much more to understand the outcomes and to give be given the scope and the flexibility um, in order to like evolve the process to do it better to improve it incrementally the challenge comes and the bit that I think you know Hopefully some listeners might have some better ideas on than me is how to create really great knowledge bases that people can engage in and update and, and will actually be useful. Mm. That map how everything intersects and allow people enough um, latitude to improve things. But when they do improve things, they're able to share it with the group in a really clear, non-tedious way. So it's a collective effort of making how... The workflow functions. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because often those things are done once and then not looked at again. Well, this is the problem. They're, they're, they're a huge amount of work. You put them up there and no one ever uses them. Yeah. Um, so it's like, how do you engage people? Because I do believe they are important and they definitely have business value. You know, they add value to, to, to any organization that has them. It's just how to do it in an engaging way. And I think uh, I'm still learning on that front. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with the language you use. Uh, Process is not a good word for people. <laughs> no one likes to feel like they are part of a process. Yes. Uh, and, and you'll notice like in a lot of the, you know, uh, agile kind of world and all of that, people don't, it, it's all a process, but yeah. people don't like using the P word. Yeah. And, and, I, and I completely get why. It just makes people feel very futile. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can relate. And I think, you know, the work that I've been doing with growing companies, you recognize that over time, having no... P word in yeah. place is g- going to mean that the the business is built on uh, toothpicks, right? Yeah, because exactly. the foundations are fragile, and that goes both from internal processes and also a tech yeah. process in the back end. And if those things are hacked together, they'll work. Um, you'll be able to show good numbers, good growth numbers, but over time, the system will crash, exactly. and the price of fixing a broken process instead of investing in the present in order to you know build for the future i think is invaluable but exactly. it's very very tricky to 
explain and build the business case as to why it matters now yeah. um, because they haven't felt how bad it's going yeah. to be in the future. And, and, and that, that's so much of the problem. It, it's being able to communicate forward saying, if we want to get to this future, we need to build this stuff now. And really any process that you, you put together, if you're working in a tech company or any kind of startup like that, should really be your roadmap towards automation. Yes. So what you're doing is, you know, you know a process is just an algorithm. They're, they're the same thing. And when you create a process, you're creating something that's repeatable and therefore automatable. Exactly. Through simple yeah. logic. And the idea, if you have that, much like talking about people only can have the four things in their brain, a great process would then just provide a platform from which people can be creative and, and do different stuff. Because the things that would usually cause them anxiety are all mapped out either in a clear way or they've been automated for, allowing them to be better employees and more creative and more flexible. And faster business growth. And faster business growth, which <laughs> should be everybody should be wants. The yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so lastly, I know we had talked a little bit um, before we recorded the podcast uh, about um, you know, the metric of managing people or the number of people you manages, manage mm. becomes like the success. Yeah, right. Do you right. want to, let's talk a little bit about that because I think it's really interesting and very, I think a lot of people could relate to that. Yeah. So and I, I've, I, I, I'm sure it's the same in other industries, but I, I, in the media industry, I notice this a lot. So in the, in the media industry, whether you're creating content or, um, or whether you're working with brands or, or, or whatever, you tend to be the most common type of person is someone who's quite journalistic in a lot of the companies that I've worked for. Now, journalists want to be journalists. They don't necessarily want to be sitting in an office managing people. Yeah. And what you tend to get is this idea that in order to be successful, to get the pay, to be get the respect, the kudos, all the things that people look for in their career, you need to be managing some vast framework of people. Yes. So whether that's a big team or whether you've got layers of middle management. And what that means is that we have countless people managing people who literally have no inclination or no interest to be doing that job and they really just want to be doing the vocation that they started out and the function that they started out in to a really high standard and I think this creates so many problems um, you see constantly like mismanagement of a scale that's like almost immoral yeah you know because we are so much of people now uh, especially young people, so much their identity is tied up in their role. Mm. Um, we ask them to be thinking about it outside of work, to you know, have this huge, to be on so much of the time. And I think that comes with a real moral responsibility to anyone who's leading to make sure that that's a rewarding, um, a rewarding way of living for mm -hmm. those people. It's the primary way in which they experience their own identity. And to then have a bunch of people leading them who really don't care about that is it's really terrible. It's really terrible. And it, I think it causes people a great deal of pain and anxiety. Very in a, much, yeah. In a very real sense. And I, I think it's, I've seen this both in larger businesses mm. because it is a very easy um, kind of metric of mm. career success. And, yeah. you know, well, you, as you go up the ladder, then we'll just keep adding people yeah. into your team. I've seen it in, um, it's very common in um, sales-driven companies, mm. like recruitment, for example. Mm. So, People are given a team because they've uh, billed the most, but billing the most has no correlation to people management. I think that's Two just completely different yeah, fundamentally yeah. wrong. Um, but then, and then also in uh, fast-growing businesses, is you know while we've really got this great uh, CTO, for example, that can produce excellent code, uh, let's give them a team. Uh, the premise that they'll be able to 
you know, teach or somehow their uh, skill set will rub off on their team and yeah. we'll have, you know, a mini team full of that great CTO. And that's not in practice how yeah. it works. And uh, in the recruitment work that I did with my parents in executive recruitment, when we were finding engineers mostly, you would watch almost their passion start to erode yeah. because they were being asked to people manage. And yeah. we've people managed and it's an exhausting yeah. task. Yeah. Um, and you, it doesn't give you a lot of time to do your practitioner work, which gives yeah. you energy and excitement and, exactly. you know, feeds into the ability to then manage. And yeah, I, I'm with you. I think companies really need to look at one, are there two avenues? And I know Apple does this really well. They have the practitioner route mm-hmm. to success and the management route to success. Exactly. And you're not worse off whichever yeah. one you choose. And I think that's a model that many companies, especially in digital and tech, uh, that you that they need to adopt to because yeah. it's I think personally management is what, where companies uh, become broken yeah. Um, yeah because bad management just trickles down into the team and everyone exactly. becomes disempowered and no happy oh no happiness means bad products yeah. you completely it's, it's, it's like the, the fallacy of the org chart isn't it like, yeah. like there is of course a necessity to having a clear org chart that people understand but there are a lot of evils of the org, org chart there's implied value all the way up and down exactly. if you're at the top of that you're the man if you're yeah. at the bottom you know you might be the person delivering most value yeah. <laughs> but like it, you know the psychology of that sort of pyramid structure I think it's wonderful that, that Apple do that and I think we need to bring back uh, respect for experts Yeah. Uh, I mean that's a, a problem that we have not just in the business world but actually you know, overall in, in society, we need to bring back those people who are specialists, expert knowledge and add value that way uh, and, and, and allow them to be as eccentric as, as they can be within that role um, because they're not going to be impacting people negatively. People aren't going to be going home in, a, in fits of rage or sadness because <laughs> they're to deal with this insane specialist, you know. <laughs> very, very true. I think that's an excellent uh, place to close up. And uh, really want to thank you for being on uh, the episode. That was very insightful, and I think the listeners will get a lot from that. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Great. Cheers. Thanks for listening, and a big thanks to Ross for taking part on the Overtime Podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the conversation with Ross. I've listened to this podcast many times over as I've gone through the show notes. I keep pulling, you know, anecdotes or really great quotes from this episode Uh, I found so much resonated with me I hope it also resonated with you Uh, one of my favorites is the dungeon master reference to good software development Uh, although I like I said I have never played dungeon dungeon master I'm kind of interested intrigued now Um, but really how you know how Ross explains that being a leader is about taking a facilitative role and using that as your default instead of management, uh, which is really about um, process and uh, you know deadlines and timelines and tasks. Um, but what I loved in this episode is that we talked about both of those hats and how they play an equal and important role in the whole spectrum of management. Uh, I will be adding the links uh, to what Ross has referenced, specifically The Radical Candor by Kim Scott, If you haven't heard of this before, it's a feedback approach. Uh, I will link her um, kind of keynote to this and that will give you a really good insight. There's also a book um, and different uh, tools you can use to uh, apply Radical Candor if that's something you're interested in. For those of you that have reached out and given me some feedback, really, really appreciate it. Keep it coming. 
the more insight I can get onto what's working or what's relevant, the better I can tailor these podcasts. This is all just one big experiment. So feedback is necessary for me to uh, test my own assumptions on what I think you guys will find valuable. Uh, if you did find this valuable and relevant and you think someone else would find this relevant, please then share away on social channels in whatever way that you're most comfortable with. Um, it's great to get the ball rolling on this and I'm looking forward to our third podcast. So take care and speak soon. Bye.